This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, as US President Joe Biden prepares for a historic visit to PNG, we ask what the significance of the event is for the region. And Papua New Guinea is one of these uh, places that both superpowers would like to secure. And discontent on the iconic Kokoda track, where local employees of a trekking company are blocking the route. They just cancelled our license, which we are not happy with that. So because of that, this has to happen. We also head to Vanuatu, where followers of the Prince Philip movement on Tanner Island are preparing for the coronation of his son, King Charles. We have about 100 chiefs coming to Nicola and Council of Chiefs all around the island. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, one of Fiji's most prominent politicians has spent the last night in jail. Ayaz Syed Kayum once held up to a dozen portfolios at the height of the Fiji First Party's rule, serving as both the finance minister and attorney general, and was considered Frank Bainimarama's power broker. But yesterday, Mr. Kayum was arrested by police and charged with abuse of office. Joining us now to talk more about this case is ABC's Fiji reporter, Lide Muvono. Good morning, Bula. Um, so tell us, what are the these criminal charges that are laid against uh, Mr. Kayum? Mr. Ayasad Kayum is due to be produced in court this morning and he will answer to charges of abuse of office, Priyanka. The charges relate to the, um, the, the, the recruitment and, or rather the, the extension of contract and salaries around the former supervisor of elections, Mohammed Sanim. Um, the, the complaint was made by the current acting supervisor of elections to the police in February of this year, Priyanka. Mm, interesting. Today. Um, have we heard from Mr. Kayum or Fiji first? Have they responded to these charges at all? We haven't heard anything yet, and now that he's due to appear in court, we don't expect to hear from them at least until after. Um, if you remember, uh, not too long ago, the former Prime Minister, Frank Bainamaramo, himself faced abuse of office charges along with the former, sorry, the suspended police commissioner. They spoke after the, the, um, the court appearance. So I'm hoping to get word from Mr. Kayum in a couple of hours, Priyanka. Mm, very interesting. Interesting. I mean, you mentioned there that um, that those charges laid against um, Mr. Bainimarama. I believe he's he's since been out on bail, but those charges still loom over him. I mean, it's been quite a dramatic fall for Grace um, from Grace for Mr. Kayum and Mr. Bainimarama here. Both are out of parliament and now face these criminal charges. Um, what do you make of this? Lide? Do they still have a future in politics in Fiji? Priyanka, as long as they're only facing charges and not yet convicted, they they could pretty much function like any other politician. In fact, they continue to run the Fiji First Party. Mr. Kayum is apparently still the general secretary and for all intents and purposes continues to run the organization. However, if either of these men are convicted of any of these charges, that ends their ability to run for national office. Um, However, as it stands, Mr. Kayum is still 
one of the most powerful men in this country, in the political space, despite not holding uh, a seat in the national parliament, Priyanka. Mm, interesting. I mean, considering um, his power, Mr. Kayum's power, and of course, Mr. Bainamarama's power as, as leader of um, Fiji First and former politician, a former prime minister, I should say, um, it does beg the question, uh, uh, could these charges be politically motivated? It's most definitely a question on the minds of many people in Fiji, Priyanka, bearing in mind that the Fiji First Party did poll you know, more votes than any other party who contested the, the general elections uh, to the end of last year. And Mr. Kayum himself is, if I'm not mistaken, was in the top five polling candidates in the 2014 and 2018 elections. He polled third highest. So super influential. And, and you know, he has the trust of about um, half the people of this country, the people who voted Fiji first. Um, so there is the question of that in the minds of those loyal to the Fiji First Party. And it it seems that the police are very aware of that implication because in the statement they issued late last night following the laying of formal charges, they reiterated that the special task force of the Criminal Investigations Department is super independent and answering only to the Chief of Intelligence, ACP Sakio Raikavi. So they're aware of the possibility that people may not have full confidence in what is going on. Mm, very interesting. Um, while you're with us, Lide, um, because you are our, our reporter there in Fiji, I wanted to ask you some questions more broadly about politics and, and recent happenings there in Fiji. Um, the government there recently held an economic summit. Um, can you tell us what has been the reaction of that event? Has there been any outcome, significant outcome from that economic summit? What I understand is that the economic summit uh, will influence future policies of the government. As it stands, a lot of people are um, questioning the comprehensive nature of the economic summit. There was uh, there were questions around representation, for example, um, the youth. The youth, you know, the youth caucus of the country questioned youth participation. There weren't very many women, um, and, and it was by invitation only to actually sit in the summit. So there are a lot of questions around that, and as it stands, we're still to hear from the government as to how exactly the recommendations, or, or rather the communique issued after that summit, is going to influence future policy. But we have heard from uh, Biman Prasad, who is, of course, the Minister of Economy and Minister of Finance, um, that the, 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 the findings, the more larger findings and not that represented at the summit is already uh, very um, inclusive in that it, it includes the voices of people from outside of the urban districts. So there is some reason for optimism, but it's still a wait and see game, Priyanka, as to how exactly this government will come up with creative solutions, given that we're now very aware that um, the state of the economy is actually quite bad. Mm, yes, very interesting. And it's interesting you mentioned there, Lede, that um, there are these criticisms around the lack of representation at that economic summit, because I know Fiji's cabinet, you know, more largely has been criticised for lacking diversity. There's only one woman and the majority of its members are Itoke, are um, Indigenous Fijian. Has the government responded to some of these criticisms? 
Not directly, um, uh, Priyanka. We continue to hear from the Prime Minister and, of course, from the Minister, from the Deputy Prime Minister, Manokam Kamida, who, you know, has large oversight around a lot of the economic um, uh, work of the government, uh, with, with the consultation, of course, of the actual Minister for Economy, the other Deputy Prime Minister, Biman Prasad. Um, so there's, there hasn't been direct response to criticisms around diversity and around inclusivity, um, although they do keep inviting the opposition to be part of their initiatives, the opposition did not turn up at all mm. at the National Economic Summit. So there's still a lot of concern. And now that concern is not just from people who didn't vote for this government, but also from uh, people who are loyal to the People's Alliance Party and the People's Coalition. Uh, people are questioning um, uh, accountability and transparency of the government's work right now. I mean, interesting you mentioned that because part of that accountability, part of that uh, transparency in a democracy comes from the opposition. You mentioned there that the opposition didn't turn up. But looking more broadly, what is the what is the status of Fiji First Party, the, the opposition there with both Bainimarama and as we've been discussing, these new charges laid against Mr. Kayum, they've both been sidelined. Who is leading the party? Is, it, is there a robust uh, opposition in Fiji at the moment? Well, the current leader of opposition is um, a former military colonel, Inia Serratu, who is not a walkover. He is, he was a very senior member of the previous government, was the government's international champion on climate change for very many years. Uh, he stood in for prime in, in the prime minister's seat several times and has represented the government abroad on many high-level and senior uh, uh, initiatives. So he's not, um, he was a shoe-in for the position and a lot of people expected him to be leader of opposition because he's uh, of his seniority. So um, whether or not the, the party is functioning at optimum is, I think, something that remains to be seen. But is the party falling apart? Absolutely not. They're still very together. And, you know, their, their communications and marketing arm, for example, is still quite robust, still operating in, in much the same way that they did in the past. And um, they are still quite active in parliament and are very critical of the government um, in, in its new initiatives. Uh, but um, people are still waiting to see how robust they will be, considering that I said Kayum, the general secretary, was a very powerful and um, quite a mover and a shaker in Fiji for uh, the better part of the last 20 years. Mm, indeed. Well, we'll see where these um, charges uh, take Mr. Kayum. Uh, Lide, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. That was Lide Mavono, ABC's reporter in Fiji, telling us, uh, as I as I mentioned before, that um, the former Attorney General of Fiji, Mr. Ayaz Syed Kayum, has been arrested by police and charged with abuse of office. U.S. President Joe Biden will head to Papua New Guinea on May 22nd for a historic meeting with 18 Pacific leaders. But what does the arrival of one of the most powerful leaders in the world mean for PNG itself? It's a question the ABC's Belinda Cora posed to PNG academic and political researcher Michael Kabuni. That the big countries are in, uh, interested in in the region and especially Papua New Guinea. Uh, Papua New Guinea being the the highest population in the region, natural resources, but are strategically located between the west uh, and the fringes of the east, especially China. And if you go back to Second World War, uh, 
Papua New Guinea played a, a huge role. Uh, it was strategically located. It was where uh, Japan's expansion uh, southward uh, was reversed. Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands, but um, Papua New Guinea is where the intense fighting took place. So as the geopolitical uh, rivalry in the region increases, uh, this historical context is very important to uh, keep it keep in mind. If there's going to be any uh, war, and uh, you know, let's let's open pray it doesn't happen. But if there is, then Papua New Guinea is one of these uh, places that both superpowers would like to secure. Uh, Papua New Guinea and leaders are some of the uh, leaders in the region that the superpowers want to befriend. So there are a lot of resources uh, been poured into the region, but especially in Papua New Guinea, and uh, we can talk about this a bit more. Uh, yeah, so the visit of the United States uh, president is unprecedented. Uh, it's never happened before, uh, but it's also a reflection of the rivalry and the importance geopolitical uh, position that Papua New Guinea uh, is seen at the moment. Mr. Biden is expected to also meet PIF leaders at the APEC House during his three-hour stopover. How do you view the region's reaction towards such a short visit and how much of an impact would it have on the islands and its people if he is there to also address them? It shows the significance of the region, so much so that the President of the United States on his way to a different meeting, had to make time, even if it's three hours. And on the Pacific leaders' perspective, it's an opportunity they couldn't miss because the United States leaders, let's be honest, never stopped by in the Pacific. Uh, and I think this is the first, and especially for Papua New Guinea to host, it's a very important event at the political level for the leaders, uh, but at the grassroots level as well. The the word on the street is, you know, the United States president is visiting Papua New Guinea. Now, whether that translates into any uh, greater benefit than Papua New Guinea already is, we don't know. But the narrative on the on the on the streets and at the grassroots level is that it's very important uh, because United States is supposedly the most powerful country in the world, and their president is visiting Papua New Guinea. If you look back just a few years ago in 2018, APEC, so APEC meeting uh, in Papua New Guinea, uh, the United States president didn't even attend that meeting. It was the vice president attended. Uh, the Chinese uh, uh, president uh, attended the meeting, but the United States uh, president never did. So you can see the escalation in, in the last couple of years. A PNG for the first time is welcoming the the first ever sitting president of the U.S. to to come to this island country. Is it better place to receive this leader during this time? What should it be cautious about and and also be prepared for, especially during um, these times when um, powerful countries are also keeping a watch in the region? There's already groundworks going on. I would assume. The U.S. security forces are already on the ground. Uh, you may not see them, but trust me, they are inserted uh, within strategic locations within the country uh, and, and especially in Port Mosby, anything to be concerned about. Uh, 
But look, it's another opportunity for world leaders to converge, uh, even at a short notice, uh, to experience first and uh, what opening is like. You know, there's a lot of negative reporting uh, about the country and its image, uh, but there are also positives about a country, and it's it's good, uh, you know, for them to see that first and. But at the regional uh, level. That was Michael Kabuni, a PhD candidate at the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. He was speaking there to ABC's Belinda Cora. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Timor-Leste will hold its national election later this month, where two lifelong rivals will be pitted head-to-head. A key contender is CNRT leader Shanana Guzmao, a former freedom fighter and the nation's first president. His main opponent is Mari Al-Kariti, who, Al-Katiri, sorry, who was Timor-Leste's first prime minister and is the current head of the Fretilin party. Whoever becomes the leader will have the challenge of saving Timor's economy, which is in dire straits as oil and gas revenues dwindle. Speaking with Marion Farr, Mr. Al-Katiri says his plan is to diversify the country's income streams. The main problem for Timor-Leste inherited from an bad government for almost 15 years, led by Shanana Guzman, that has really spent a lot of money, 15, 16 billion dollars, for very bad results. For the other hand, they, they were not a, really a political of policy of diversification of the, of the economy. Now what we need is really how to, to get into a new kind of government that can really develop an economy and uh, go into the renewal, the renewal source for energy. We need a green, green economic development and we, together with a blue economic development. One of the main potential sources of revenue for Timor-Leste is the, sunrise, uh, the greater sunrise yeah. oil and gas field. You mentioned that you need, we need to, to look... diversify. We need to diversify the economy. We have we are very potential. There's a lot of things, but uh, we need to have a better management of our our resources. So, if your party gets into power, will you be looking to pursue the Greater Sunrise Oil and Gas Field development? Well, sure, but, but uh, to pursue the oil and gas doesn't mean that I believe in full dependence to oil and gas. I am against full dependence to oil and gas and the resources from oil and gas. What sort of opportunities for diversification would you like to pursue if you get into government? First of all, uh, uh, tourism, agriculture, small industries, fisheries. And do you think those industries can be developed in time in enough developed rapidly enough to agriculture related to fisheries related to tourism we, we can do it in a short time now on the topic of greater sunrise would you like to see the oil and gas processed onshore domestically in timor-leste i am the very first member very first timorese to defend the pipeline to timor-leste and have the, the industry industry of sunrise in timor-leste i'm the very first but my difference from Shanana is i I also 
made it clear that we need a feasibility study, economic feasibility study first. If it is shown to be economically feasible, how would you plan to fund the infrastructure needed to process the oil and gas domestically? Of course, the infrastructure is part of the whole economic process. If it's feasible, it is included already. How to get the money for infrastructure? Would you be willing to partner with China in order to build that infrastructure if China offered to help Not fund it? Not necessarily. I, have, I need, I need to, to tender it internationally and I will, uh, will see who, who will come better than others. Now, Australia is one of Timor-Leste's closest neighbours and a major development partner, but the relationship hasn't been without its challenges. I'm sure you haven't forgotten the case of Australia bugging your government to gain an advantage in maritime treaty negotiations at the time you were Prime Minister in 2004. Now, many, I, I, many years have passed... At the time that I was Prime Minister, I got 90%, Australia 10%, from 50-50. It means that you need to negotiate with competencies, but you need also economic uh, uh, vision. My question is, many years have passed since that time, but is there still bad blood in the relationship between Timor-Leste and Australia, in your opinion? No, 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 no. I, I made it clear to the ambassador here and to all politicians from, from Australia that our relations are very positive and in, in going in depth. But we need to solve the pending issues properly. This is only my position is this. We have to avoid bullying each other. One of Timor-Leste's key diplomatic goals is to join ASEAN. It's been agreed to in principle. To, but... be, to be a platform to be, uh, to, for Timor-Leste to globalise its, its inter- intervention. Now, if you're elected... ASEAN. Sorry, Mr Alcateri, if you're elected, how do you intend to secure this mission and what role could Australia play in helping... Since to... 75, since 75 that we have been defending being member of ASEAN for, with a very different reasons. Now, with a much more as political and economic reasons. I do believe that it, uh, regional integration is very important. Unfortunately, we cannot be members of ASEAN and for, uh, of Pacific. This is the condition because we are in the, mid, in the middle, in the centre of this, these two regions. Mr Alcateri, you've been in politics for a very long time. You were the nation's first ever Prime Minister for Team I've Molestic. been in politics since 1975, 74-75. Indeed. And almost more than 50 years being in politics. Indeed, and you bring with you um, a wealth of experience. But while that history is still extremely important, it's becoming less relevant to a large number of young voters in Timor-Leste. How do you plan Uh, to appeal to this section of the population? They understand that we fought a lot for independence of this country. And they understand that the identity of our people has to be related always with our past and looking forward. But how do you plan to appeal to the younger generation of voters in Timor-Leste, people in their 20s and early 30s? The younger generation is, is those people that will vote for program, looking forward, not for figures. And what are the key elements of your program, of the policies that you'll be putting forward? Uh, my, my program is clear. How to rebuild all our nations, based on our own efforts and on our potentialities, and not too uh, completely dependent to, to oil and gas. Oil and gas is a, 
resources that can, has to benefit all the all generations to come. Speaking of sort of development, um, COVID-19 exposed some major weaknesses in Timor-Leste's health system. What's your plan to bring health services across the country up to this scratch? Is one thing. Since 74, since the first government, I've been giving a lot, a lot of attention to health. That's why we are now in a population of 1.3 million. We have more than 1,300 doctors. And we have also other professionals, other health professionals all around the country. The main thing is the last 15 years, the government didn't pay attention to health. That's why no condition for those professionals to work. And we need to, to pay attention for the conditions. We need to, to, to really upgrade their knowledge. It means develop the education to be a good system, the health system, but not only to train the doctors, but to have equipments, modern equipments. Mr. Alkatiri, in this election, you'll be running against one of your lifelong rivals, Shajana Guzmao. How does it feel to be going head to head in this election this time round? I'm completely ready for everything, ready to, to, to win in this, in this election. I'm sure that I will, I will win. I will win. Do you think it's going to be a close fight? Sanana and his party only won, only once. They won Fratling once. Uh, the problem is the alliance that they made after election. Yes, this is okay. They have been governing the country based on the, the alliance. They've never been a, a winner in the election. But this time, I started my, my, my campaign with the alliance with other two potential parties. We are now in this alliance together. We have 36 seats in the, in the, in the parliament. It's an absolute majority, more than absolute majority. And I believe that Fretlin will increase the number of seats in, in the parliament. That was Timur Leste's Fretlin, a party leader and political candidate, Mari Alkatiri, speaking there with Marion Farr. And Pacific Beat has invited his rival, this political rival, at least, the head of CNRT, Shanana Guzmao, to an interview. And that invitation remains open. We hope to have him on the show soon. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. A major route into the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea's central province has been blockaded amid a feud between a trekking operator and the track's managing authority. The group, made up of locals employed by Adventure Kokoda, says they have stopped at least two separate groups of people from hiking the track. As Tim Swanston reports, it comes after the two operators' license was cancelled last week. The Kokoda track, tit for tat. Landowners who work for the largest trekking tour operator, Adventure Kokoda, blockading the road in. They're angry over the cancellation of the company's licence. We're all frustrated about that. Why can't they just uh, give us a warning or something like that? They just cancelled our licence, which we are not happy with that. So because of that, this has to happen. They say the livelihoods of hundreds of these men is on the line. We don't have any other ways where we can earn our income, so we boys really worry about this. The Kokoda Initiative Committee alleges the company evaded paying trekking fees last month and cancelled its licence. It says more than 100 tourists trek the trail without a valid permit. 
The company's owner, Charlie Lynn, disputes the allegations and says fees were paid within 24 hours of his first group walking the track. COVID was really hard and it's an industry that we're trying to rebuild. Um, the blockade is not going to help that at all. So we're all very, very disappointed. Mr Lynn says he did not organise the blockade. It also follows the death of Adelaide father and veteran Paul Miller on the track while walking with Adventure Kokoda last month. More walking to be done. At least two groups of trekkers have been turned away from the barricades so far. Many are saying it shouldn't have come to this. Landowners are out of pocket and so too are people who travelled here, now unable to pay their respects to those who fought and died in World War II. Everyone that's been coming here has been putting in a lot of training and a lot of work, so to be turned away would be really disappointing. Operators are hoping a solution can be found and quickly. That was a PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston, there. Hold the front page! And now it's time in Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by a reporter, Evan Wasuka. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, uh, let's start um, with uh, China's special envoy who's given an interview to the um, Solomon Islands Observer, or the Samoa Observer newspaper, sorry. What has he said? Yeah, Priyanka, we, we chatted earlier this week about Chan Bo being in Samoa and uh, it's a bit unusual and he's gone ahead and he's given uh, an interview with a Samoan Observer newspaper. Mm. The interesting thing is it's not about, he's not talking about Samoa's relations with China. It's about China's relations with Fiji. So in oh, this, really? yes. So in this interview, um, uh, according to the newspaper, Chan Bo says he's perplexed by Fiji's decision to scrap a deal between police in China and police in Fiji. Uh, so this is interesting because it's one of the first times where China has actually come out and uh, said something publicly. Uh, so Chan Bo, who's the special envoy uh, with for China in the region, he says he didn't understand what had happened in that relations between the two countries, given that things were quite solid and that they had strong relations for a while. And then, uh, if you remember earlier this year, Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka from Fiji, he announced that Fiji was looking at scrapping that relationship or that, well, that specific agreement, which is made back in 2011. And it focused around training and aid between the Fiji police force and the Chinese police. Uh, and that agreement mm. included all sorts of arrangements, including a, a hotline between the office, that, between the Chinese police and the Fiji police. Uh, also in this interview, Chan Bo, he told the Samoan observer that he was disappointed that the Fiji government had also made that decision to officially recognize Taiwan's uh, trade office in Fiji uh, because previously, under the previous government, uh, it was referred to as the Taipei trade office. Now, mm-hmm. under Rambuka, it is the uh, Taiwan trade office. Um, so Chan Bo, the special envoy, uh, he said, uh, despite the disappointment in how things are turning out in Fiji, he said China was keen on seeking a diplomatic resolution uh, in this relationship between the two countries. Um, and he said uh, in that interview, he also said that um, China's relations in the Pacific wasn't targeting anyone in particular like the US <laughs> or Australia. And one of the interesting quotes he had in that uh, interview was that um, he questioned why there were issues over China's relations in terms of policing with Pacific countries. Mm-hmm. He said that um, the U.S. 
and other countries have police relations, why not China? Um, and he was urging, well, he's trying to uh, engage, uh, urge re-engagement back with Fiji. So it's a pretty interesting interview, I thought, yes. with, with the Observer newspaper. Yes, very interesting. That's with the Samoa Observer. Um, yeah, keen to take a read of it myself to, to hear some of those interesting quotes. And I wonder if that frustration towards Fiji is given because Chanbo was the um, previous ambassador, um, Chinese ambassador to Fiji as well. So perhaps it strikes a special chord with him. I think so because he had the, he was in Fiji for a while and he had uh, developed quite a network there and uh, um, I believe he probably uh, feels a bit uh, uh, surprised that how things have gone since he's left. Yes, yes, indeed, and and perhaps he had um, you know oversaw that 2011 agreement. Who knows? And and perhaps um, has some personal involvement. Who knows? But um, interesting to see uh, yes his his comments as in this new envoy position for the Pacific. Um, and now let's go to the Northern Pacific, Evan, where Palau looks set to conclude its long-standing negotiations now with the U.S. over the Compact of Free Association. The outcome looks pretty good for Palau, doesn't it? It certainly does. According to this report by Radio New Zealand International, uh, they're saying that Palau is set to conclude those negotiations within the next month. And that uh, that means Palau is one of the first countries off the block in terms of the compact uh, negotiations around the Compact of Free Association. So that's the international agreement between the United States, um, Marshall Islands, uh, FSM, and of course Palau. Mm. Um, and the good news for Palau is uh, the president, uh, Sarangal Whips Jr., he says Palau could, could get around 890 U.S. Um, that's U.S. $890 million in assistance from uh, the United States over the next two decades. Uh, Strangle Whips, he told Congress this uh, last week, and uh, he's saying that this amount, which they've, re- they've gotten to, uh, is double what they were wow. initially talking about, uh, but it's been negotiated up. So he's uh, pretty happy about that uh, conclusion, well, that amount at least. Uh, so the breakdown, he's given just a tiny bit of details about that agreement. It's about $5 million for infrastructure, uh, another $5 million for maintenance, and $10 million a year in, ter- in terms of uh, assistance to Palau to repay back their uh, loans from COVID-19. And then there's another $100 million for the Compact Trust Fund. Hmm. So it's uh, it's looking good for Palau and um uh, Mr. Whips uh, said this had come about because of strong negotiations between his government and the U.S. Uh, government. Um, so we'll we'll see which other countries are next to settle their negotiations. Yes, yes, very interesting to hear. Um, I wonder if all that interest, the geopolitical interest in in the Pacific, means um, leaders like Mr. Whips have a bit more leverage when they go into these uh, negotiations um, and and can achieve outcomes like this one. Um, very interesting there. Um, and now to a story that we've been reporting a bit a bit on here in Pacific Beach. Um, across the Pacific, countries are looking losing qualified nurses, mainly to Australia and New Zealand through their regional um, labour schemes. Um, But Fiji, well, what is that country doing about it? Yeah, so Fiji seems to have come up with a response. Um, As you said, Pacific Beat has been talking about this for uh, maybe the past six months. We've seen that 
countries are losing nurses. Solomon Islands uh, is one. But Fiji, we've seen a large amount of nurses, especially those within the public service. Now, the Fiji Times is reporting that the Minister of Health seems to have uh, had enough of this problem and it's seeking uh, a bigger solution from the government to stop mm. this exodus. Health Secretary Dr. James Fong, he told the Fiji Times that a submission has been made to, made to government to not only look at a salary restructure for nurses, but also other conditions. Now, uh, Dr. Fong wouldn't go into the details until, at least until those measures have been approved by the government, but he said it was a, a way to retain qualified nurses that Fiji has been losing. Um, I think the main point he was trying to uh, reiterate in this uh, news, newspaper article was that it wasn't just about salary, but it was also about other conditions and benefits that nurses uh, would gain. But um, certainly a, a, a positive step there in terms of the Fiji government trying to deal with an issue that's come about as a result of uh, better wages and work conditions overseas and uh, that's attracting nurses in Fiji and other countries. Yes, yes, uh, very interesting. I mean, I guess the question is is if um, Fiji's government has the resources to actually make these changes and to potentially pay nurses differently, better you'd, you'd imagine, compared to um, what they earn overseas to keep them in the country. Um, I know Solomon Islands was also looking at changing its policy to try and um, fill, fill, I guess, health gaps um, in its workforce due to um, the regional labour schemes as well. And if you want to listen to any of those previous stories, including the one in Solomon Islands and the one that um, the more regional problems nurses and health sector faces as a result of the um, regional labour schemes, you can head to ABC Pacific. Dubrovka Volodair was our reporter mainly looking at this, um, wasn't it, Evan? But um, you can find some other stories there as well. Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, Solomon Islands isn't only losing nurses to Australia, but it's also losing nurses to Vanuatu. <laughs> ah, yes, indeed, yes. And the twist of the story is Vanuatu is sending um, students, nurses, to the Solomons to get trained up. <laughs> oh, so really? Uh, yeah, a bit of interrelationship between the countries around nursing and health. Yes, yes, very, very interesting to see how it's all connected and, um, you know, one thing feeding into the other, I guess. Um, very, very interesting there. Um, and some more interesting stories coming up here on Pacific Beat. Uh, we'll be speaking to, well, I'm very excited about this, Evan. Um, go, we'll be heading to the island of Tanner in Vanuatu to speak to um, members of these, this Prince Philip movement, the uh, members who once, I guess, honoured um, Prince Philip of Britain. Um, they've now, it's understand, moved their, their honour to um, bestow it on to King Charles, whose coronation is coming up this weekend. We'll be hearing about how they'll be expected to celebrate that coronation that's coming up. Thank you, Wes, Evan, for giving us those latest uh, stories from around the region. Thank you, Priyanka. Inside Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inside Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inside Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. This is Pacific Beach. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Pacific leaders and dignitaries from around the world have started arriving in London for this weekend's coronation of King Charles III. 
but thousands of kilometres away in the Vanuatu island of Tanna, a special traditional ceremony will also be held to mark Charles's ascension to the throne in the villages of Yaon, Nanen and Yakel, where the late Prince Philip was honoured as a deity, thousands will gather to celebrate the coronation of his son. Chief Johnson Ikapas says the celebrations will include a flag-raising ceremony and lots of kava. We have about 100 chiefs coming to Nicola and Council of Chiefs all around the island. And then uh, the, the ceremony will begin in the morning at 8 and the flag racing will be probably around 10.30. And after the flag racing, they will do a lot of concerts, dancing, reflecting the crowning of uh, the prince. And after that, uh, they will end the day up at Yakel village, which is where Chief Yaba just mentioned that when he met Prince Philip in um, England, he says he did everything in England, but his heart is still back in Tana. So it is exactly the village where they will uh, do the dancing and the finishing of the ceremony. So uh, it's going to be a big celebration. We are talking about 5,000, 6,000 people gathering together to, to celebrate the, the crowning of this king. And um, this person is really meaningful to to people of Tana. It's unbelievable that you will see a lot of people believing and celebrating the crowning of the of the prince. It's a lot of activities, and at night after the cover, there will be custom dance, women and men dancing together. So uh, it's going to be a big. It's another thing that uh, we will will bring back the history of uh, England and Tana, and keep remembering the friendship on this island. Chief Johnson, now the people of three villages on Tana who still believe that they are related to the late Prince Philip and his family. Can you tell us about that? The village of Yonanan, Yakel and uh, Ikunala, they are special villages. They believe that Prince Philip, his parents or great-grandparents have, and they're originally from these uh, villages, uh, especially Yonanan village. And um, the Prince Philip descendants grown up there and were raised uh, Prince Philip there and then they they were sailed out from uh, Tana to England so um, that's why they still keep the history or the tradition very well and um, they still believe that uh, Prince Philip is originally from Tana so that's why every every time they have the two celebrations in order to remember the relationship or the descendants that have left Yonanan uh, to go back to England. This is what makes them um, really believe that this royal family are from Tana. Uh, it's a, a week before the coronation of King Charles. What's the mm-hmm. feeling there on Tana about this special event? Well, the feeling now looks like a lot of people are happy. You know, they, in in a way, in a sense that if you're looking at the people around town now. I think people will come with different food and different uh, preparation, decoration. And so people are so excited and looking forward for the day to come. So there are news going around every place on the island to come and uh, celebrate during the 7th of uh, May. So everyone in Dana is so excited now. During the coronation itself, will there be lots of food to share 
apart from dancing and also, I guess, kava being uh, uh, shared around? Or? Yes. There will be a lot of uh, food exchanging. So the, each community on Nakamal coming, bringing food, bringing kava and bringing kif for the exchange as, as, a, as a ceremony. Even I'm so proud to see that because when I was a kid, I was, you know, I'm really interested on following this uh, history. Yes, I like the history. So it's first time ever to see this celebration, which is really important for me. It reflects plenty back in Nakamal, in uh, all our traditional rituals, which is really, really important. We took it as like a, a celebration called Toka Dance, where we elect the high chief of the island. So this is why a lot of people are preparing and looking forward. A lot of visitors would be interested in attending this uh, monumental event on Tana. Yes, I have a small guest house, and there are about 16 people confirmed, like from Australia and a few from Europe to come and um, join the celebration on Tana. That was a John, as Chief Johnson Yakapasa from the island of Tana in Vanuatu, and he was speaking there to ABC's Caroline Tierman. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. For me, it was really challenging. Give me that look of disappointment when I'm feeding my child with a bottle instead of breast milk. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. This is Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning. And just a reminder of our top story today, one of Fiji's most powerful politicians, Ayaz Syed Kayum, spent the night in a cell after police charged him with abuse of office. It follows the arrest of his former party leader and former Prime Minister Frank Bayimarama earlier this year. We spoke to the ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lide Mavono, about the future of these political heavyweights. As long as they're only facing charges and not get convicted, they they could pretty much function like any other politician. In fact, they continue to run the Fiji First Party. That was our a reporter in Fiji, Lede Mavono. If you want to catch up on any of those stories, head to the ABC Pacific website. News is next.